You are now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Five, six, seven, eight. Holla, boys and girls, it's the BGN. Coming from the Marvel world to the DC friends. All the way from Hollywood to the PCN. She defends everyone from sleazy men. Won't apologize for spitting Shonda Rhimes. The space that we make is never colonized. We're talking games and movies and actors. Words. Better shake your booties for Black Girl Nerds. All right, Black Girl Nerds listeners, I want to take a second to give you a peek behind the curtain of the podcast industry. No surprise, it's a bit of a boys club. Only about 28% of charting podcasts are hosted by women, even though women audiences listen to podcasts 28% more than men, women also control 85% of household purchasing power in the US. So the question is, why are our voices undervalued in this space? One company that's trying to solve this problem is ASA Collective. I'm proud to be a member of this platform that connects women plus podcast creators with advertisers to amplify and support underrepresented voices. ASA has helped the Black Girl Nerds podcast. We've worked with them before on previous campaigns, and I'm glad to have a monetization partner such as ASA to be in control of the advertisers that you hear on this show while increasing our earning potential with other partners. If you'd like to support Asa's efforts and learn more about the company, they are running a crowdfunding campaign on Start Engine to become one of the first podcast networks owned by its listeners and members. That's you and me. Visit startengine.com slash Asa. That's startengine.com slash Asa to learn more. In this first ever biography about the life and work of Alice Dunbar Nelson, Dr. Tara Green reveals the remarkable story of the love of one black woman had for her race of men and women, and finally, of herself. Born in New Orleans in 1875 to a mother, was a former slave and a father of questionable identity. Alice Dunbar Nelson was a pioneering woman who actively addressed racial and gender inequalities as a writer, suffragette, educator, and activist. Dr. Green builds on black feminist sexuality, historical and cultural studies to create a literary biography that examines Dunbar Nelson's life and legacy as a respectable activist a woman who navigated complex challenges associated with resisting racism and sexism, and who defined her sexual identity and sexual agency within the confines of respectability politics. It's a book about the past, but it's also a book about the present that nods to the future. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this interview with author Dr. Tara Green as she talks about her latest book called Love, Activism, and the Respectable Life of Alice Dunbar Nelson in this episode of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. 
Welcome to the Black Girl Nurse Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan, and let's take a little bit of a history lesson for this episode. You know, I'm talking about 1920s, 30s. Let's go back to the Harlem Renaissance, right? Um, You know, a little history lesson here. You know, the Harlem Renaissance, intellectual, cultural revival of African-American music, dance, art, literature. And you usually hear people like Langston Hughes or O'Neill Hurston. But what about Alice Dunbar Nelson, right? Right? I got you curious. Somebody knew we're shining a light on throwing this in here today. And um, I'm so excited to have the guest, uh, my guest with me today, and she's going to talk to me about her book called Love, Activism, and the Respectable Life of Alice Dunbar-Nelson. I am talking about Dr. Tara T. Green. How are you doing, Dr. Green? I am very well. How are you? Doing good. Thank you so much for joining me. I was talking to you again before we started recording. This is so interesting to have a different um, name to throw in there for the Harlem Renaissance, just in general, um, that you don't get to hear to shine a new light. Um, what what was it about Alice Dunbar Nelson for you? Um, why shine a light on her? Well, Alice Dunbar Nelson is from New Orleans, and she graduated from Street College. And I graduated from Dillard University, which was, uh, which is a, a, um, a descendant, if you will, an academic descendant of straight college. And she studied education and taught literature. And as the canon of African-American literary writers developed, she would uh, bring that work into her classroom in Wilmington, Delaware. And so we just have so much in common, really. And you talked about it being like a 10-year uh, journey um, of when I was checking out this book here, there's so many different, you know, so much, so much of her poetry, so much of, you know, the talk about the interaction with people in her life. Um, where did you start? Like, how did you know where to begin? That's a good question. It really started with me having a research question, which was why did this light-skinned Creole woman leave New Orleans and marry this darker-skinned man? Mm-hmm. And the book is the answer to that question, as I say in my introduction, because I would have to unravel some things that really were not true about her and to move past the fact that she was married to this famous man, that she had a long life before that. And she had a, a just a fabulous, interesting life before and after her marriage to Paul Lawrence Dunbar. And, you know, speaking of like just the interesting life she had, it's just so many like you guys definitely have to check this out again. It's called Love, Activism and the Respectable Life of Alice Dunbar Nelson, a poet activist. Definitely have to check it out because there's so many different layers to her life. But one of the things that that stood out to me or actually a couple of things I kind of want to touch on here with you. um, The first thing is that she helped develop a black uh, club women's movement. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Yeah, she started off in New Orleans. She was surrounded by older Black women who saw a need because they were that first generation out of slavery who had the privilege of being able to get a college education, really. And this was really important for the South because she was born in New Orleans in 1875 to a woman who was formerly enslaved. And so for her to be able to connect with people who were teachers, Savannah Williams was the president of the Phyllis Wheatley Club in New Orleans, that began for her, as far as I know, her activism. 
And so she would move from that work in New Orleans and work with other women who were older and start this national movement. And we still have Black women's clubs today. And you know what's interesting too, um, I always say like, I joke today, like, you know, they'll say there's like a, a Black moms club or it's just that unity, you know, of women, um, you know, that just like can just read you on the spot. And it's just it's like a bold movement um, and the way we interact and we work together as Black women. And what is so interesting too, and you're talking about in the 20s and the 30s that you shared in the book, is, um, you know, they, lean, they the men were the ones that could, you know, provide financially, you know, that can open certain doors for you. And just to see, um, hear Al, uh, Alice Dunbar Nelson's story of how she moved through that to kind of make her dreams come through and to kind of make it work for her, you know, even though society wanted to see, you know, it was, you know, male dominated, um, you know, where do you, where do these black women fit in? What was like, what was like, what was the most interesting, I guess I should say, uh, fact that you learned in terms of that, like just the way Black women had to represent themselves and just, um, you know, being um, financially independent if that was an option? Yeah, well, that's the kind of sad part is, so we, you know, some of this was addressed during the civil rights movement, which is that Black teachers, most of whom were women, got paid less than their white counterparts who were teachers, particularly in the South. Mm. And so, you know, that's like, um, gosh, I mean, that that's um, over 60 years after she started her career. So she would never see that even being addressed, really. She was doing all this work in the community. Mm-hmm. She was working with the political folks in the mostly in the Republican Party. She was um, on the national level, traveling as a suffragist, traveling against war and doing all of these speeches. So she was very well known and respected within black communities. But what we come to realize, and this is why archival research is so important or even having an archive to look at, is that these folks, including people like W.E.B. Du Bois, did not make a lot of money off the work that they were doing. Mm -hmm. And as a woman, she certainly did not. So one of the reasons why she keeps the name Dunbar is because it helps to open doors for her. So as independent as she is in this women-centered family of hers, of her mother, her sister, Um, And she does marry three times, but those men do not provide for her um, as it's inconsistent. The the provisions are inconsistent and she works until she cannot work anymore uh, Mm -hmm. as a teacher. That was the income that was coming in for the family. And it just wasn't very much money at all. And you, and you know, too, um, just I, I think I'm just fascinated, I guess. And I um, and like you kind of revealed to a little bit her life and just the boldness, right, mm-hmm. of this woman being in this time period and showing the different layers that black women can have, that women can have, period. Um, because you talk like we talk about, you know, um, the, the men that the men that she was in relationship with, you know, that, you know, sometimes that was your financial security or you're almost your way to get into the door because you knew you weren't going to make as much money or have certain opportunities. 
And um, I remember one line you had in the in the um, in the book here, kind of paraphrasing it here. But you talked about how she became increasingly comfortable with her identity um, as a black saint, uh, as a loving uh, black woman of the, or loving people of the same sex, but also loving men. And I, I was thinking, like, in the 20s and 30s, for a black woman to feel comfortable, you know, and people reading this story now to see like her strength and being able to live her truth in the ways that she could. Um, you know, dealing with the LGBTQ community today and, you know, still fighting for those rights. But can you speak a little bit to just like that research you found and um, how kind of how you felt kind of uncovering that and just how bold that is? Yeah, well, and it goes back even farther for her because she's born in 1875. So presuming mm-hmm. that she was born desiring women, I don't, you know, it's difficult to know. When she began to be comfortable in uh, pursuing those desires, but there is some suggestion that it happened quite early for her, actually, even before she left New Orleans. But certainly when she perhaps went because of a reference that she makes in a letter to Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Uh So, um, you know, by the 20s and 30s is when Black people become a little bit more comfortable with being Black because of that Harlem Renaissance movement, because they are, let's say, the grandchildren of enslaved people. Some of them are in the South. Some of them are in New York and other parts of the country. And some folks just don't want to be bothered with the racism that exists throughout the country. And they leave the country and go to places like uh, France, for example. Mm -hmm. And so where they could be more um, out, if you will. Right, right. Yeah. Who they were in France and in Germany for some folks also. So we began to see when we look at archives for that time period that it's not unusual to uncover that people had, you know, for a while that was called alternative lifestyles. Right. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> and so she's older. And I think that one of the most interesting things that I found about this wasn't necessarily that because I've been teaching for years. And so so I certainly had some awareness of what folks were singing and what they were doing. The blues women, for example, if you listen to Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith, then they're pretty out there about, about their desires. But for mm-hmm. Alice Dunbar Nelson, what she makes clear in her diary entries is that when these women, these leaders, got together for their conventions, that there would be some extracurricular activities that were taking place also. And I just, I remain fascinated by that because I I would like to see some more work done to, um, because, you know, there are politics involved and people are having relationships with people that other folks may not know about. So there's just so much there. Yeah, it was. And I love, too, how you have there's so many different chapters um, that add in, you know, love and what she's doing and kind of, you know, how that was like her main, um, you know, there's one like activist love and pain, you know, just kind of how it, it it brings in like how she the love was always an aspect of this different act, going through these different periods of her life. 
mm-hmm. and you know just trying to understand the way she related things and the way thing you know way writing helped her the way poetry helped her express herself and mm-hmm. you know a time where it was like you said there was a beginning their expression of being comfortable being black but we all know like years to come we know how many restrictions still come with that um, you know, coming out of that era. So her to be able to find expressions. And I just love the way you break that down in these different chapters that I definitely hope people go and check out. Um, again, guys, go check this out right now. It is out now for you to get paperback, hardback, uh, love activism and the respectful life of Alice Dunbar Nelson. Last question about the book. And then I got to get to the teacher, uh, teaching Dr. Green, because we got to get touch on that. Um, but for the book, I'm curious though, like if you could do like a little time machine number, right? And go back and talk to uh, Alice. Like, what would you want to ask her? Because I just feel like you've done so much in-depth research on her. On her, and I'm just curious. Like, what would you still want to know? What, what would still be some of your questions? Well, there are two questions on the table. One is who was her father? Um, that's mm-hmm. that's a, a big mystery, and so I start off with that. And then the second question is: she never says why she actually left. Um, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, there's something that he says to her as opposed to something that he does to her. And she calls it slander. But what exactly is that slander? So she was a woman of mystery and secrets. And those would be two questions that I would try to ease into that she probably never answered for me, but I would love to know anyway. (laughs) Yeah, it's something. Yeah, like I tell you, like so, like women, when you get the secrets in there and know how to play them right, and nobody knows, and it just takes you time to uncover and unravel everything. It's very interesting. So yeah, it's definitely a lot of mystery with her story. That would definitely be cool. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so we got to switch to the teaching here. We talk about how Alice Dunbar Nelson is a teacher, but you've been teaching for twenty five years. Mm-hmm. You know, dealing with all these bad college kids. <laughs> But no, it's um, you're teaching. Um, you're currently a professor, former uh, director at uh, African American um, African Diaspora Studies at University of North Carolina in Greensboro. Um, what do you feel like having teaching teaching for so long? What was missing, or what do you feel is added to students having this, um, you know, this uh, degree or this method of study, um, you know, as part of their coursework? Well, you know, one thing is is the recovery and the discovery. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes students learn something that they just simply did not know and would not know if they didn't take one of our classes. And so teaching about, for example, the Black Club Women's Movement, as I do in my U.S. Black Women's course, and also even in my literature course, because if I when I teach about Alice Dunbar Nelson, I always try to slide a little bit of that in there. Yeah, They are shocked. And so was I, because it wasn't until researching her that I learned about the Black Club Women's Movement and that I am a legacy of it as a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority, of which she was also a member, an honorary member. So it's it's really that discovery and recovery that happens in the classroom. And and sometimes for me, it's it's also discovery and recovery as their teacher who tries to keep up and tries to know. Yeah, and because you're right, you definitely don't get this material because you get certain material already, right, in some courses, but it never feels like enough. And I know when I took a lot of like the African diaspora studies classes and everything, there was so many, there were so many different layers 
Um, you know, like you said about, you know, just being black, period, being comfortable, different reasons, different areas where we come from, background and culture that you won't get, you know, if you don't get to, you know, at least like a little taste, a, little, a chance to submerge yourself in one of these classes, which mm-hmm. I always thought was was so interesting and so cool. Um, I want to kind of talk about um, you did you were part of the Black Lives Matter Triad Collection Project, um, you know, as part of like you continuing to teach, continuing um, to, to shed light on these matters. What, uh, why was that important to you? And, um, and kind of, I guess, kind of going forward, um, do you kind of hope to kind of create more of that kind of awareness and kind of use your, your teaching in that manner? Well, certainly. And the reason why it was important to me is because an iteration of a movement was taking place. And at an important time, because this the the last protests that we had, we saw a difference in some of the people who were participating in those protests. We also had a pandemic that was taking place, and people were unemployed, for example, and right. people were dying, and it had a major impact on Blacks and Latinos. And then we had several years of contentious political um, rhetoric that was that we were drowning in, particularly black folks. And so, and it didn't even matter the generation. I think that this was something that tied us together across generations as well. And so when people took to the streets and in my own city of Greensboro, I saw the art that was coming out of that, I knew that I needed to talk to archivists because that's where I live in the archives as a writer and a scholar. I didn't want to see material thrown away. We had to capture the voices. We had to capture the anger, the hope, the pessimism, the optimism, whatever was out there and Mm. needed to be archived. And so that was what we did. And my students, had gone to protests for their first time and they were excited to be involved in some way in the Black Lives Matter course that I taught that semester. That was the third time that I taught it. And so it it was um, a memorable journey that I was able to go on with them. And, you know, uh, Dr. Green, I know you never stopped teaching because you've been doing it for 25 years. So you got to live it, right? You got to have a passion for it. Uh, so I think that is so cool. So neat. Um, so what do you got coming next? I saw See Me Naked. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, See Me Naked is, it looks again at respectability. So it's actually in conversation with the Love and Activism book. Mm-hmm. But it deals with Black women, different Black women. So how do they navigate the expectations of respectability and define pleasure on their own terms? And when I think about pleasure, looking at, at their um, examples, what I see here is that it, unlike Alice Dunbar Nelson, they do not put the community first. If the community may benefit from what they're doing, but that's not necessarily their primary concern. So I laughed with Moms Mabley, the comedian that opened so many doors and enjoyed looking closely at the films of Lena Horne, um, mm-hmm. learning more about Yolanda Du Bois, 
of the Harlem Renaissance, of course. She's the, the daughter of W.E.B. Du Bois. And I also looked at Memphis Minnie, a, a blues singer. And I end with the very well-known Langston Hughes, who loved him some Black women and wrote about <laughs> Black women. Yeah. And I knew the Black women that I discussed. So it's, 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 that's a fun book. I really enjoyed that one, writing that one. Is that out? Is that out now, or when is that one? It is out. That one came out in oh, February. Oh, cool, cool. So that's Rutgers University Press. There you guys go. Look, you got two options. Where she shine a light on different people in the in the in the just in the black community that we should know, and just in the Harlem Renaissance, and just that will give you some inspiration. If you need a little inspiration, um, there's a lot still going on in the world, um, and just that feel that um, empowerment. You know, escape for a little bit. You know, it's getting warm outside. Kind of chill up under a tree and kind of check some of these people out. Um, you know, get your history lesson on. Uh, Dr. Crane, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you guys later. Bye. Definitely go check these books out. The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Brodnax and Ryan Bennett. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find episodes of the Black Girl Nerds podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and Spotify.